Welcome to the Wealthy Speaker Podcast, the show that offers you tips and strategies to help speakers build the business of their dreams. Now, here's your host, 30-year industry veteran and business coach, Jane Atkinson. At Northrop Grumman, we're breaking down how you save a dying satellite. First, launch another rocket with a satellite to recharge it. For these two satellites to dock, it's like hitting a bullet with a bullet. Discover careers across science, technology, and engineering. Start defining possible at ngc.com careers. Hi, I'm Rachel Morford, president of the Society of Women Engineers. Welcome to Diverse, a sweet podcast. This month, we are celebrating Women's History Month. And today I'm joined by Lisa M.P. Munoz, a science writer who is a founder and president of SciComm Services, where she works with a variety of academic groups, nonprofits, and startups across the sciences on strategic communication and content development. She has an engineering degree from Cornell University with a specialization in science writing. Lisa's book, set to come out later this year, highlights stories from women in STEM fields who have experienced deep inequity, ranging from brutal harassment to years of subtle slights, while bringing to light research-based solutions to make the culture of science more diverse, inclusive, and equitable for everyone. This is actually Lisa's second time on the podcast. You can listen to her first episode, Documenting Inequities in the Sciences, by searching for episode 164. I am so excited to have you here with us today, Lisa, and to have you back for your second podcast. Thanks for being here. Thanks so much for having me, Rachel. I'm excited to be back, and I'm excited to be back during Women's History Month. What a great time to talk about these topics. Absolutely. And I think it'll be really exciting for all of our listeners because I imagine that a lot of our topics today will build off of the content that you talked about in episode 164. Yes, absolutely. It's it's great timing. And I'm so excited to share with the audience my continued insights. I'm, I keep learning so much about women in history. So I have the best job in the world. <laughs> It seems like it. So for anyone who hasn't had a chance to listen to your first episode or for anyone who might need a refresh, can you first talk a little bit about your book and what inspired you to write it? Yes. And thank you for asking. Um, so this book has been a long time coming for me. Um, as you mentioned in the intro, I have a background in engineering and I've been a science writer my whole career. And so as someone who's worked across the sciences and engineering, um, I've had just the absolute privilege to interview hundreds of scientists and engineers and to really get insight into the human side and not just about their research and their discovery, but their motivations and sort of the culture of science. And between that and work that I've done in social psychology, I've just long wanted to explore the topic of uh, gender disparities in STEM fields. And it's a topic that, as I discussed uh, more in the first podcast, came into new focus for me when I was publicist for the film Picture a Scientist. And now with this book, I really just want to delve deeper into this question of why the gender gap still exists in STEM fields. So, you know, we live at this wonderful time in history where women have so much greater opportunity than ever before to pursue science, to pursue engineering, to pursue math. Um, but there's still all of these obstacles in place. And so I want to dive into, you know, what needs to happen to move the needle further. And I like to think of it as 
how can science help to fix science? <laughs> so, you know, we have this tremendous body of work in psychology and in the social sciences that shows um, all kinds of new ways that we can start removing some of those obstacles and create more equity for women in science. So I'm, I'm hoping that through the book, I can share that research. I can continue these discussions. I can promote further awareness. You know, we need to have awareness of these issues happening at not only the individual level, but also at the institutional and societal level. And then I'm also combining that with lots of new stories of women in science. And I, I find that in learning about people's paths to science and even their struggles and then their work to combat inequities, it just it inspires me every day. So um, that that's the book in a nutshell. <laughs> Well, thank you so much for bringing to light these inspirational stories. And I think that we talk a lot about how representation matters. And I think that having the representation of some of these struggles is equally as important as, as the physical, um, visible diversity and representation. If, if someone thinks that they're the only person experiencing something, then it, it's very isolating and harder to deal with. So thank you for for bringing some of these things to light. Yeah, absolutely. And I would say, um, you know, in, in interviews that I've had with women for this book, it is exactly what you're saying, a, a, a common theme, which is that women often feel isolated. They feel like it's just them. Um, it's very easy to feel like it's something personal to get the imposter syndrome, to think that you're the only one experiencing these things. And there's a lot of power and strength in numbers. There's a lot of power and strength in storytelling, and that drives me as a writer to, to continue doing the work that I'm doing. You're building that community amongst all of the women who are pursuing degrees or have pursued degrees in science and math and engineering. Absolutely. A community, a support system, um, hopefully new safe spaces uh, where, where people feel free to talk to each other about their experiences. So in those discussions, I imagine that you have seen some of the ways that women have been historically underrepresented in science manifested. I mean, everyone in SWE is very well aware of the fact that women are a very small population in engineering. What are some of the observations that you've taken away from how we've seen that historically? Yes, absolutely. I mean, nobody can deny that women have just been massively historically underrepresented in STEM fields. And of course, it becomes this cycle because when you don't have that representation, you don't have role models and mentors who are inspiring and helping to support the next generation. And it's not surprising, this historic trend, given that women were shut out of you know, the higher education system until relatively recently and didn't have the same rights and freedoms as, as men. Um, they couldn't file patents. You know, the, the list goes on and on. But um, one remarkable thing that I've seen in my research and, and talking to people is that despite all of that, women have made really rich contributions to STEM over the last few centuries, but they just don't get the credit. <laughs> they either get completely uncredited or miscredited. And that trend has continued in modern times, despite the fact that women are entering STEM in much greater numbers. There continues to be this major gender gap. 
Um, mostly, um, it's, it's very complicated, and I talk about it a lot in the book, but a lot of it's rooted in outdated gender stereotypes that still shape modern society. But, um, but as we have more awareness, more stories are starting to surface, even historically, of these contributions um, that women have had to science. Um, I, can, I can talk briefly if, if you want to hear about this amazing publication from 1883 that I found called Women as an Inventor. Uh, should, should I go for it? Okay. Absolutely, yes. <laughs> yeah, and so it was this, it was so eye-opening because it was written so long ago. Um, it was written by a suffragette named Matilda Jocelyn Gage. And she basically, in 1883, slams this assertion that women don't possess inventive genius. But she doesn't just say that and make that argument. She then goes on to detail like so many inventions, starting with ancient civilizations in China and Egypt, elsewhere, and then going through to her modern day in the 19th century um, about all of these inventions that were created by women. But because they lacked you know, political power and freedom, they, they weren't recognized. And what I find so interesting about it is that I'm only learning about these stories, some of them for the first time. Um, and some of them, uh, as, as will be the case in an example I'll give you in just a second, um, are totally different than what I learned <laughs> in grade school. But my daughters, I have two daughters. My, my younger daughter is eight and she's an aspiring astrobiologist. And she reads prolifically like bios, children's books about women inventors and women scientists. And she knows a lot of these stories. So like, we'll sit down over dinner and I'll be like, she'll be like, oh, what did you do today, mommy? And I'll tell her the story. She'll be like, oh yeah, I read that in this book called Stolen Science. And I'm like, oh, wow, that's very different than, than my experience in, in school. In any case, so one of the stories that I learned in this Women as an Inventor um, was about the cotton gin. Um, I, I don't know if you're familiar at all, Rachel, with the cotton gin and who you think invented it. I'm familiar with the cotton gin. I don't recall who invented it, <laughs> although I, my grade school self probably did. Yeah. So my grade school self, I grew up in the South. So cotton gin was a very important piece of history. So I learned very early on that it was Eli Whitney who invented the cotton gin. Um, and I was stunned in reading this publication from 1883 to learn that Eli Whitney was, in fact, during the time that he invented the cotton gin, um, he was boarding at a plantation um, that was uh, being run by Catherine Green, who was the widow of a Revolutionary War general. And um, she actually was the one who described to him this problem of you know, separating the seeds from the cotton and how difficult it made it um, to grow and produce cotton in large amounts. And um, according to this publication by Matilda Gage, she actually came up with some of the initial designs and then asked for Whitney's help in building it. And I've since read lots of different accounts of it um, where nobody exactly knows what role she played, but it's clear that she played a very large role um, at a minimum, helping to finance it and inspire it, but perhaps even more than that um, in, in designing this cotton gin, which Whitney received a patent for in 1794. And um, of course, Green wasn't on that patent, but I did learn that he later gave some royalties to her and he became famous uh, for better or worse. The, the cotton gin is one of those uh, stories of a remarkable machine, but it actually... Um, ended up fueling slavery. So in the process of making 
cotton less labor intensive to produce, planters made more money, they grew more cotton, and then they used that money to buy more slaves. Um, but, but it's this interesting bit of history that, um, that I learned from this publication from 1883. And the really interesting, the reason that I came across this publication was because about 100 years after she wrote it, in 1993, um, a social scientist named Margaret Rossiter uh, would coin this phenomenon called the Matilda effect. So she named it after this suffragette who wrote this publication. And it literally describes this phenomenon where male scientists receive credit for work done by women. So yes, listeners, there's actually a name for that, <laughs> for, for men getting credit for women's work. Um, and it's called the Matilda effect. And so anyway, that's just like a, a, a very small slice of this fascinating history that I feel like I'm learning for the first time. Thanks so much for that story, Lisa. As you were talking about that, it reminded me of something that I learned about when I was in my high school biology class. Um, and I guess it's it's really great that I learned about it in my class, but it was about Rosalind Franklin and the discovery of the double helix structure of DNA and how she didn't get credit for her contributions to that. Yes, absolutely. Rosalind Franklin, um, she was... Uh, an x-ray crystallographer at the University of Cambridge. And she took this very famous photo called Photo 51 that actually revealed the helical structure of DNA. And when um, James Watson and Francis Crick uh, published the paper in 1953, they did not acknowledge her photo at all in the work. And of course, um, they would go on to get the Nobel Prize in physiology and medicine and Franklin um, passed away actually before that happened. And I actually remember on a recent trip that I took, it was pre-COVID, but it feels recent to me because I haven't traveled much the last couple of years that I took to the University of Cambridge. Um, I was on a tour and the guide said that um, they really have an emphasis now in telling that story on their tour and trying to give her that recognition, even though, of course, she, she passed away a long time ago. So Lisa, can you share what you found in your research pertaining to the potential causes of the Matilda effect or the things where, where women are really making significant contributions and are not getting the credit? Yes, and that's a great question. <laughs> and it, it takes the whole book and probably it'll be even a, a second book maybe. I hope not. But it, it's, it's a very complicated set of factors. Um, and a lot of it gets down to implicit bias. Um, I'll give you an example of another. So you have the Matilda effect, but there's another effect that's talked about a lot in the psychology research called the Matthew effect. Um, it's, it's fun that we have these two twin effects with a, a male and female name to, to talk about the, this, this gender gap. But the Matthew effect is basically this idea that success begets success, right? So if you have early fame, then you're going to continue getting more famous. And so it's sort of like a winner takes all type thing. And so you can imagine how hard that cycle is to break when you're talking about women and uh, people of color being historically represented. So if you if you need early success in order to have later success, it, it creates a, a really thorny situation. Um, and, and I can talk briefly about the Matthew effect because it it talks about a different type of bias, right? So it isn't necessarily gender specific, but it's this idea that 
we will tend to, to pay attention more and to be excited more by people who are already on our radar, people who we know, people who are famous. And that might uh, tend to make us overvalue their work relative to newcomers or people who we haven't heard of. And um, the, the Matthew effect itself um, was coined by a sociologist in the 1960s named Robert Murden. And ironically, the idea came from a woman, Harriet Zuckerman, who would eventually marry Murden. And she was interviewing Nobel laureates um, in the early 1960s. And she saw this pattern emerge, which was that well-known scientists got um, disproportionately higher visibility for their contributions um, compared to relatively unknown ones. And based on that, Murden wrote this paper called The Matthew Effect in Science. And um, ironically, he listed himself as the only author. <laughs> um, and then like five years later, um, he was quoted as saying something like, it is now belatedly evident to me um, that basically he should have given Zuckerman credit and joint authorship for that paper. And so I, that story in and of itself shows how this Matthew and this Matilda effect sort of exacerbate um, and, and heighten this, this gender gap. Um, and both of these effects have been studied extensively um, in the literature in the last few decades. Um, so there's this study, I believe it was in 2018, looking at um, data from a Dutch uh, grant program. And it showed how basically the Matthew effect explains why funding was in the hands of only a small number of scholars. And they showed that the early funding in and of itself was an asset in helping um, the researchers get funding later. And it wasn't based necessarily on their achievements. Um, it was just the fact that they had that early funding. And then they also conversely found that those who failed to win funding were less likely to apply for future grants. And so it was this reinforcing cycle and it was independent of the merit of um, the, the grant proposals. And so I think that that's something that we see a lot, which is that, you know, we like to believe that science is this meritocracy and the best will rise to the top. And that if we can sort of solve, you know, some of the representation issues that everything else will work out. But what we see is that there are these deeply embedded biases, um, both related to, to gender stereotypes, how we evaluate um, what makes for a good proposal, but also just this idea that we tend to reward people who have already been successful. And so um, there's, there's a lot of this that's rooted in implicit bias. Um, and the good news is that with implicit bias, even though it's unconscious, even though it's a very difficult and pervasive problem, awareness can go a really long way um, in, in helping to solve some of these problems. That is a really fascinating story. And I could you definitely see the Matilda and Matthew effect working in concert. And I think it highlights to me, at least, at least in part, why it's so important to potentially remove names and have a double blind judging system when we're looking at grant proposals or scholarship applications, for example. Um, 
I, I realize that's not exactly connected to what you were. No, you were absolutely. So, but... so, so I, I actually talk about that quite a bit in the book because there have been, as you can imagine, some really fascinating um, studies and it's sort of a good news, bad news thing, which I find a lot because again, it's, it's, it's very complicated, this topic. Um, so on the one hand, there's been some, there's been a strong body of research um, that uh, some space um, agencies, ESA, NASA, have done that have shown that when they um, made their evaluation of uh, proposals for telescope time. So, you know, when you have these big fancy telescopes, you have to actually apply. They're so expensive to use. You have to actually apply to use them. And it's a very competitive process. And they found that making um, the evaluation process gender blind and, you know, anonymizing um, the applications actually closed the gender gap quite a bit in terms of telescope time. So there, there is some promising research showing that that does help. However, on the other hand, there's a study that I uh, talk about in the book. Um, I believe it's from 2019 that showed how um, even when you blind the, the review process, there is still an implicit bias in terms of the language that men tend to use versus women using. And even if you don't know who wrote what, uh, we have a tendency or uh, the people who are evaluating these grants have a tendency to go for that language. And so they found that men tended to use more broad sweeping language which was linked to higher uh, proposal scores, um, whereas women tended to be uh, more narrow and specific. And so it doesn't mean that there isn't a solution here, but it means that it isn't enough necessarily to blind the reviews. It means that we might need to have training and awareness to be sensitive to different communication types, uh, styles, and also uh, representation again, sort of increasing the number of women who are on review panels might help to mitigate that bias. So again, even that one topic shows this complex intersection of, um, you know, individual societal and institutional issues related to implicit bias. Yeah, absolutely. It was so fascinating. And I appreciate the example that you gave because it, it's a little bit of a double-edged sword, um, it sounds like. So thank you. Going back to the discussion about early success begets future success, I wonder if that in part comes because of the confidence boost that some of the scientists might get from that early success. So you alluded to the fact that if someone had a grant that grant proposal that was not accepted, they were less likely to apply again. Um, so it yes, sounds like there's some training that we might do there. Absolutely. There's a huge body of work on the importance of mindset um, in everything, really. Right. So uh, probably a lot of our listeners have heard about, you know, growth mindset versus fixed mindset and how, you know, having a growth mindset and sort of believing and having that confidence can really help. And so certainly we see that in the research that was done on the Matthew effect and showing that. Um, you know, not getting that early funding affected people's motivation. But we also see um, there was a, a recent study that was done um, specific to um, awards and uh, rewards showing that women, um, perhaps because of a lack of confidence, um, are often less likely to apply for awards. And so somebody did a, a study looking at whether 
if you make it as an opt out system instead of an opt in system, if that actually closes the gender gap. Um, this is a very recent study, and um, I, I can make sure that we include it. Um, if listeners are interested, include some resources about this in the blog post. But it basically showed that, yes, when you have women have to opt out instead of opt in to applying for awards, it is more likely um, that they're going to be in the running and that there are going to be more women who are getting um, you know, recognition for their work. That is really fascinating. I would personally be very interested in that research. So please definitely include that in in our blog. Um, I wonder how that could be implemented um, and and what, what are the mechanisms that we could use to set that system up? Yeah, and that's a great question. And I think that that's the next step, right? So sort of step one is, all right, we need to be aware of the full extent of these problems, the full issues of these problems, we need to give a platform for them. Then second, we have all of this research that we need to bring to light. And then eventually we need to translate that research into best best practices. And, um, you know, I'm, I'm really hopeful and excited about the possibility of, you know, putting all of this research together in one place and seeing what ideas can come out of it in terms of implementation in the actual workplace. I'm sure a lot of our listeners would be fascinated and eager to apply those solutions in their workplaces as well. Moving moving on to a slightly different topic, we've obviously seen in the last few decades the the discussion about women's skills and capabilities compared to men being really all of those myths being debunked, right? The thoughts mm-hmm. of the, the 1950s and 60s and, be, and even beyond um, about how women aren't good at math and, and that's just not how their brains worked. Those, those have all been debunked. Um, how have, in your research, how have you seen that the obstacles for women changing over time? Obviously laws changing have helped, but what else has really contributed to that? It's a great question. There, there have been a, a lot of, you know, societal changes. Um, I'll take you through one one short story, which um, I think gives a little bit of a snapshot of really big picture changes. I'm um, looking at just one area of STEM. So this is paleontology. Um, so every summer, uh, I go with my family to visit Ithaca, New York. It's uh, the home of my alma mater, uh, Cornell, and I love it there. And last summer, we were really lucky that there was an exhibit at the Museum of the Earth, which is a fantastic little geology museum there for anybody who's interested. Um, and they had this exhibit called Daring to Dig Women in American Paleontology. And it took visitors through women in paleontology from the 1600s to the present day. And I'll just never forget that when we arrived, there was this docent there who kind of talked us through, gave us an overview. And he said, okay, if you move clockwise, starting in the left-hand corner of the room, you'll first see that the first set of female paleontologists were all wives of scientists, right? So they worked with their husbands, they illustrated them, and they they found ways to contribute uh, through their husband's work. And then you kind of move clockwise, and the next group of female paleontologists were wealthy heiresses who had the money to invest in expeditions to go out and collect fossils and to explore. And these were women who not only had a lot of money, but were very ambitious. So they made their own clothes. They learned to shoot guns. They recruited other women. 
And then as you move around the room next, you get to the time in history when women started taking teaching roles. And of course, teaching became a very uh, popular profession for women in general. And then finally, women start working as, you know, professional paleontologists. And so it took, you know, hundreds of years of societal change for them to be able to get there. And, you know, it's a little sliver, but I think it mirrors sort of the same general historic trends that we see in other STEM fields. And I think that what we see now is that um, while we still have gender rooted stereotypes that um, might influence or steer some um, girls and women away from sciences, and it's that's still a super important topic and an area for us to work in, women in general have much greater opportunity and representation than they ever have. Um, but the challenges really are in retention. The challenges are, um, people call it a leaky pipeline. I saw an analogy that I like much better, that it's a hostile obstacle course, <laughs> that uh, you know, it's not like women are leaking through the, the cracks and through the pipes. It's more that they're being pushed out um, through um, an environment that too often doesn't support women in STEM the way that it needs to, to enable them to succeed. And so there are multiple um, obstacles at different points in the career in terms of advancement, in terms of um, work-life balance, expectations, communication styles. Um, so despite the fact, as you said, that these myths have been debunked, there are still these obstacles that are in place. And it's from just, you know, all of these years and years and years of having different expectations of both what the workplace should look like and who the ideal worker should be. I really do like that analogy much better as well. And I can, as I think back on some of the conversations I've had with people who have left the STEM workplace, I think that fits a lot better with their experiences. It's it's not usually a quiet, I'm just fading away. It's i I've, I've tried and pushed and I just can't, I don't have the energy or, or time or willingness to commit to that push any longer. Um, so I'm going to go do something where I'm appreciated for all of my contributions. So. Yeah, absolutely. And, I, and, and language can sometimes be really important. So I, I think that an unintended consequence of this leaky pipeline metaphor is that it, it feels very passive, right? So mm -hmm. it, 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 and it also seems to, it, it feels both passive, but it also seems to place the onus on the individual women, yeah. you know, like they're leaking out instead of the fact that they're being pushed out. And um, this was something um, that we talked about in the first podcast, this idea of, you know, fix the women versus fix the system. Um, and I think we need to be much more focused on fix the system, <laughs> um, solutions rather than fix the women. And so the fix the system means removing those obstacles rather than fix the women, you know, stopping individual women from, from leaving that pipeline. And so that's a case I think where language really does matter. Absolutely. Speaking of some of those obstacles um, and, and things that may help remove those obstacles, how much of your research was focused on Title IX and how much has, did, if so, how much did that help women in STEM? 
It's a good question. Um, so I do have a, a section in the book that's all about Title IX and the the system that has been built up around reporting harassment, um, you know, within institutions. Um, and, and Title IX has an interesting history unto itself that, like many of these things, I had no idea about before I started researching this book. Um, so what what you might know is that it was part of um, the education amendments in 1972, which was a law passed by Congress. And it bans discrimination on the basis of sex for any education program or any activity that receives federal funding. Um, but it was really only applied to cases of sexual harassment in 1977. And so what happened in 1977 was that a group of students at Yale decided to survey women about their experiences. And they found all of these complaints about professors having sex with their students in return for improved grades or other types of advancement. And so they brought these findings to the university and said, can you implement a central grievance system? And um, the university denied that request. So they decided to go to court. And there was this case called Alexander versus Yale. And the interesting thing that I found about this case was that it was ultimately dismissed from court. But before doing so, the judge basically upheld the argument that sexual harassment is a form of discrimination under Title IX. And that really changed the landscape. So after that, Yale implemented, you know, central grievance procedures. And so did like every other university. And so Title IX had this really major contribution and number one, first and foremost, recognizing that sexual harassment is a problem of discrimination and that it occurs. Um, but and so that's hugely important. And I don't want to take away from that. But what I talk a lot about in the book is that even Title IX has its limits. You know, ultimately, we're asking institutions to police themselves. And there are a lot of competing interests in how they enforce those policies. Um, and so. There are still a lot of places where we can fix that system and fix it as it applies to private industry as well. Um, and there are some new policies um, that are helping, for example, bringing the accountability up to the funding level. So if you have somebody who's an offender um, and then the, uh, the federal funding agencies have to be notified so that then they can remove funding from those offenders. And of course, uh, with money comes to power. And so you take away the money, you take away some of that power and so you're increasing accountability. And so Title IX has had this ripple effect um, both within institutions and in private industries and in really changing how workplaces think about diversity, equity and inclusion. And so, um, but, but it's not necessarily the Title IX system itself. It's what it's led to. So, right, so now we have all these great support networks. You know, we have... Um, societies like SWE, we have other um, places where women can form communities of support, where we have new models for mentorship, where um, this is still very new, but, you know, some institutions and some other places are moving more toward having like a constellation of mentors rather than a single advisor. And then we have a lot of training, you know, explicit and implicit bias training. And so we have now, um, a broader ecosystem of support for women. And I do think that Title IX helped to sort of open that up and allow that uh, ecosystem to develop. It's the 
almost the unintended consequences of Title IX have have grown so much. And you pointed out diversity, equity, and inclusion. And I think even the addition of the idea of equity to that, right? We, we started with diversity and then we included inclusion and we've now added equity and we're, I, some of the other organizations and, and in SWE conversations, we're talking about belonging now as well. So I, I think that based on this conversation, it's right, Title IX got that ball rolling, but we've continued to grow and expand in what we understand and, and the potential um, growth of, of inclusion around this whole space because of Title IX starting. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that, you know, Title IX also, it just, as we discussed earlier, it can be really difficult for an individual woman to choose to talk about her experiences. It's really easy to feel isolated, to feel like you're the only one. And I think that when you create a a system or structure that um, at least is intended to to, to get people to, to talk about their experiences, even if it doesn't quite work that way right now, because of course, people have a fear of retaliation. Um, they, they, they have a, you know, th- there are a lot of very valid concerns um, attached with sharing your experiences. But just by opening up that doorway and leading to this this ecosystem, it gives more room for um, for people to feel comfortable sharing their experiences. And of course, now we see a lot more stories coming to light through social media, through the press. There are a lot of new avenues. Um, for women to not only share their stories, but to seek accountability. Yeah. Did did you find anything in your research that caused your perspective to shift or change? I found a lot of things (laughs) shifted um, my, my perspective and changed. You know, first of all, I was just floored by the number of stories that I read about, you know, going back like I said, hundreds of years in some cases to women contributing in substantial ways to science and to engineering and not getting credited. So that was, and and I'm happy to share more of those stories, um, you know, toward the end if we have time. Um, But I think that the biggest shift in my perspective has been that I think like a lot of people, I've long thought naively um, that a lot of issues related to equity for women in science would sort of naturally change over time once we had greater representation of women. Like I thought, okay, well, once we see more women succeeding, it'll inspire the next generation and we'll see greater gender equity. And now I realize that that's just not true. Um, I, I saw this expression for the first time the other day, actually on Twitter, the idea of just add women and stir. Um, and, and, and basically that's not enough. Um, so, it, in fact, there was a recent study that found that even in female-dominated industries, gender bias is still prevalent. And so wh- what I found is that while representation is hugely important, and I don't want to undermine the importance of that in any way, shape, or form, um, that is only one part of the solution. We also just need to dramatically rethink how we structure the workplace, what our expectations are of an ideal worker, how we think about gender roles in society, you know, pretty much every facet of how we do the business of science. And my, my husband sometimes likes to use a phrase like, you know, this is a case where one plus one equals three, right? So that the sum is greater than the parts. So it's, it's great to add more women and have that representation. And on the other hand, it's great 
to, to think about some of these structural barriers, but it's only really the combined power of the two where we're going to see the change that we need to see happen. And so um, that's been a major shift in, in my thinking about this issue. And so it's not really just the, the sheer numbers, it's the community that those women can form to then impact those structural barriers, as well as the employers or the society trying to remove the barriers at the same time. So I know that's something that our organization, right, the Society of Women Engineers is certainly looking at how can we work with employers to remove those barriers? How can we help uh, women who are in this field feel that sense of community? Absolutely. And and that is so, um, so terrific that SWE is doing that. It's so important. And, and as you said, it goes beyond even though that community of women, I mean, we need men. Yes, uh, we, we need men in the mix. We need them um, taking on the hard work. And so I, I think that that was really the message that came through to me is that we can't be complacent. We can't say, OK, now that we have all these laws in place and now that, you know, society allows women to work and allows women to go to school. And now that we have these opportunities, it's not a time where we can just be like, OK, our work is done. Like, no. No, we, we really need to, you know, systematically go through and remove those obstacles and fix the places that need fixing, because ultimately the modern workplace was structured during a time in which um, women's voices weren't there. Mm-hmm. And so now we need both, um, you know, we need all people, all genders to work together to create a system that works for everyone. And I'm, I'm really um, optimistic about that because I see that we're having a lot of those hard discussions for better or worse um, because of the COVID-19 pandemic, right? So um, even though the pandemic has um, disproportionately affected women who are, you know, continue to take on the burden of work at home, um, it, at the same time, it's forcing these uh, difficult conversations about what does work-life balance mean? What does it mean to have flexibility in the workplace? Um, and there are new models that are being tried. There, there are new things that are being put out there. And I think that that's all really um, going to be a net positive for us. Yeah, absolutely. So last question, what was the most interesting story about a woman in science that you learned about for the first time or maybe rediscovered during your research? That's a great question. I don't know that I can pick the most, but I'll, I'll tell you one that we've talked about a lot in my house. As I told you, my uh, younger daughter loves reading these books. She has one called Stolen Science. And this was one that was in her book that I independently learned about in my research. It's the story of... Um, Lise Meitner. Um, She was a physicist. She was born in Austria, Um, but then she went on to work in Germany um, with Otto Hahn. They were working on research um, that was like early precursor to nuclear fission. And she was actually Berlin University's first female professor. Um, Unfortunately, the timing was very bad (laughs) because um, the Nazis occupied Germany. And in 1938, she had to escape because she was a Jewish woman. And in one report, I saw her co- her colleague, her male colleague, Han, um, bribed a border guard with his mother's diamond ring to help her escape. Um, and so she was able to escape. She made it to Sweden and she started working with her nephew, um, Otto Frisch. 
Um, and in the meantime, Han started working with a new collaborator, Fritz Straussman, and they discovered barium when they were working with their uranium samples, but they didn't know how the barium got there. And so back in Sweden, Meitner and her nephew um, were able to show that a uranium atom could be split to create barium. And they sent a letter to the editor in Nature detailing this process. And then she contacted Han and said, you should try purifying the uranium to confirm that it was fission that led to this barium. And he did that. He did it successfully. Um, he then went on to publish the findings. Um, he didn't include Meitner as a co-author. Um, and in fairness to him, you know, he was living in Nazi Germany and she was a Jewish woman. Um, so, you know, I know that that that, that was complex. But the, the fact is that despite this long and close collaboration, um, Han got the Nobel Prize for chemistry in 1944, and he became renowned for the discovery of nuclear fission. And um, Meitner didn't get any of that credit until a long time after. So in, in 1997, she was um, recognized by getting um, the element, I think it's called Meitnerium. It's number 109 named in her honor. Um, so that's just one of, of many, many stories. There are, um, it's both inspiring and heartbreaking how many stories there are of women who have made remarkable contributions to, to STEM, but haven't necessarily uh, been recognized within their lifetimes. I had no idea about that story. So thank you for sharing. And I really look forward to your book where I imagine I'll learn a lot more stories like that. I know when I watched Picture a Scientist, the the phrase that you just used um, very much sums up how I felt. It was a great movie, but it was heartbreaking. Um, and I, I think that a lot of our listeners will really enjoy reading your book and learning more about this in the future. So thank you very much for joining us on our diverse podcast. Well, thank you so much for having me. I'm really excited about the book, which is going to be published by Columbia University Press. And I hope that it's just going to be the right mix of heartbreaking and inspiring. Um, you know, I think that we have to all go through this difficult process of, of recognizing um, the, the tragedy of the past in order to move toward a better future. And I'm really excited to be part of that. And I'm um, honored to be able to share that with you and with SWE. Thank you again, Lisa. And we're so excited that you'll be joining us for a third episode this summer. I'm Rachel Morford. And from all of us at SWE, thanks for listening. Please remember to subscribe and follow us on social med media. Please remember to subscribe and follow us on social media. Visit SWE.org for more details. We hope you enjoyed this episode of Diverse. Please don't forget to leave us a review and share this episode with your social network. Thanks for listening.